welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to episode 51 of the Madden America podcast. And this week we continue with our theme of the global mental health movement and reaction to World Mental Health Day and a global mental health summit meeting held in the UK on October 10th. This podcast series is led by our Madden America research news team and today's interviews are hosted by our lead research news editor, Justin Carter. Aside from his work at Madden America, Justin is a doctoral student in counselling psychology at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, where he pursues research in critical psychology, theoretical and philosophical issues in psychology, and social justice activism. A little background for those joining us today. On October 9th and 10th, 2018, World Mental Health Day, the UK government hosted a global mental health ministerial summit with the intention of laying out a course of action to implement mental health policies globally. In the same week, the Lancet Commission on Global Mental Health and Sustainable Development published a report outlining a proposal for scaling up mental health care globally. In response, a coalition of mental health activists and service users have organized an open letter detailing their concerns with the summit and the report. The response has attracted the support of policymakers, psychologists, psychiatrists, and researchers. In our last episode, we are joined by Dr. Melissa Raven, a critical psychologist and epidemiologist who discussed problems with the scientific evidence base used by the global mental health movement. She also emphasized the need to consider responses to the distress and suffering of people globally that address the social determinants of mental health, including things like poverty, education, and healthcare. Today, we turn our focus to the concerns raised by the mental health activists in response to the UK summit and the Lancet report. To discuss these issues, we are joined first by Jill Mill Breckenridge, a poet, writer, and mental health activist. Jill Mill is the founder of Bohr Foundation, an Indian charity which is active in mental health advocacy, the trauma-informed approach, and enabling other choices to heal apart from the biomedical model. Jill Mill also heads a team leading Mad in Asia Pacific, this is an online webzine working for better rights, justice, and inclusion for people with psychosocial disability in the Asia-Pacific region. She is currently working on a PhD in creative writing in the UK, and for the last three years, she has also been leading an online poetry therapy group for women recovering from domestic violence. She is working on a few initiatives, both in the UK and India, taking this approach into prisons and asylums. Her debut poetry collection, titled Reclamation Song, was published in May 2018. Welcome to the Madden America podcast, Jill Mill. Thanks for joining us. It's a delight to be here. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about how you became a mental health activist and why you felt the need to challenge the Western treatment approaches being implemented in India. Sure. So, um, you know, I started because I myself had issues with mental health uh, distress and I faced uh, sexual trauma in my marriage and uh, because of which uh, in India, it's very easy. You know, there are there isn't really a rights-based approach or there wasn't 10, 11 years ago. And my ex-husband and family needed to have me incarcerated um, into a mental health hospital, which is very much still run like a colonial asylum. And so this was back in 2007. And, um, you know, since that time, and a little bit before as well, you know, ever since my own issues with distress happened, I've always been very vocal, very outspoken, but particularly <clears throat> from that time of just everything being, you know, your rights just being taken and you're then labeled forever. From that time, I've been doing a lot of advocacy and a lot of uh, work on the ground as well as with policymakers and trying to change the laws in India so that it's not as easy to just lock up people just because someone wants to lock them up. Um, so this is really my journey as to why I, I'm a mental health activist and why I started Whole Foundation, uh, which works to do with the UN CRPD, the Convention for the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, and and just bring a, a different lens, you know, the trauma, trauma-informed approach, this kind of lens to look at mental health distress, that it's not just always a chemical imbalance in the brain, which is often the way it is um, sold or marketed in India. And that led me exactly into, um, you know, why we need to challenge the Western treatment approaches, because 
currently in the urban setting in India, especially for the affluent or even the middle class, if someone goes to the doctor, the Western model is used. And the Western model, unfortunately, it's a huge country. The doctor doesn't have much time. So it's just high doses of medication without really too much investigation. And I believe there's a huge, huge problem with that because medication, while good for a short term, should not be used for life. And this is what they say. Oh, you have a chemical imbalance in the brain. Now for the rest of your life, you have to be on X or Y treatment or X or Y drug. And there are huge problems with this approach. I also believe in India and countries like India, we have our own ancient systems of healing, you know, communities, uh, temples, dargahs, our own ancient ways of healing like Ayurveda, Yunani, where there are herbal and other remedies, including faith healing. And all of these do have a place in India. Even now, I do believe that um, with faith healing, there is also some community acceptance and community support. So again, just the Western treatment approach, blanket coming like that to India will, will create a lot of problems because people will say, oh, you know, get away, do away with all the ancient methods. And I do think that there are problems with that. Um, I think there has to be a more uh, inclusive method to healing and someone might heal better with the ancient method. The, you know, some Dharga-based healing or some faith-based healing, someone may have a short-term beneficial result with medication and then use other met methods like therapy, etc. And again, there's this whole power imbalance, you know, because when there is the drugs and the psychiatrist and the white coat, the white coat is at the top of the pyramid and there are these huge power imbalances that they, they are like the gods sitting there. And even though we have psychologists and counselors, um, they are not really very respected, not much is happening and a lot needs to change. There's also, of course, in India, the problems with um, economics and social models. And I think we need to focus on things like, do people have enough food to eat? Are there enough jobs? Because, you know, maybe it's not a mental health issue that, that we are looking at. So Western treatment itself is a very worrying term because treatment means there's some aberration and something needs to be treated or fixed. Perhaps there's a reason why people are sad. Perhaps there's the human condition. So, you know, it goes on and on. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and for talking about how there's some danger in applying the Western approaches in India. Can you tell us a little bit about the UK summit and the Lancet Commission and the lack of cooperation with disability rights groups like your foundation and other mental health activists? Yes, you know, just last week, like as you mentioned, on the 9th and 10th of October, there was this uh, UK ministerial summit. And, you know, I'm working in the UK right now. I'm living in the UK. My work is known about here as well as in Asia. And it was almost like there was a co covert, almost sinister lack of involvement of service users, of people with lived experiences, of people you know, mental health advocates like myself, or even academics, very few people. It was just a lot of people, you know, from the global mental health movement, uh, which often pays lip service to the fact that, yes, we, you know, I was listening, in fact, this morning to a podcast on the Lancet report, uh, which was introduced at this summit. And this Dr. Vikram Patel was saying, you know, we need to put the voices of uh, people with lived experiences at the fore. But I believe this is just lip service because if they had put the voices of people with lived experiences at the fore, there would have been a large group of mental health activists, disability rights activists, and other such groups at the summit. Unfortunately, the summit did not have these. And in fact, a colleague, uh, Dr. China Mills, whose article is going to be coming out probably tomorrow or day after on Mad in Asia. Uh, she went there in uh, disguise because she hadn't been invited. And, you know, she's written about the, the conference for us. And, you know, she said that in the UK, where we are talking about um, austerity, you know, in the UK, the service users in the UK are really... Um, facing a lot of problems because the UK government is cutting down on services, on, on hospitals, on hospital beds. 
And yet there was this really lavish summit, you know, with wine and champagne and a boat taking you for two minutes away and you're being transported by boat to these fancy receptions. Is it not hypocritical that the, that the UK government is positioning themselves as a global mental health champion when in their own country people are suffering? You know, I work with service users here in the UK. The caregivers are bothered. The service users are bad. The NHS, which is the National Health Service in the UK, they, off, they are offered, an average person after a long wait is offered six sessions of psychotherapy. Now in six sessions, nothing really is going to happen. So I really think, you know, this whole ministerial summit and the UK positioning themselves, it all seems like a bit of hogwash. And I also want to know, you know, who paid for all these very lavish spreads? Um, who is paying for research? There are very que troubling questions coming up in my mind. There are so many um, examples. You know, I've, I've, I know of so many of these big pharma companies who will fund so-called research and then position their drug, and especially in countries like India and Asia, where we don't have enough knowledge or not enough government uh, think tanks and government bodies in place. It's too easy uh, to just just be doing that. So I'm, I'm again troubled by, you know, who paid for this lavish ministerial summit. And there is a lot of anger on the ground. And you mentioned that open letter, which um, came out on the National Survivor User Network. And I'm a signatory on that, both as a, a founder of Whole Foundation, as well as lead editor for Mad in Asia. And I really think it's very troubling. And there's a lot of anger. And we hope to host Dr. China Mills on our podcast in the following weeks and to hear more from her about what took place at this summit. You mentioned that service users and people with psychosocial disabilities were excluded from the summit and the Lancet report, but you've also mentioned how the global mental health movement more generally takes an ableist lens to the way it portrays people in distress around the world. Can you tell us more about what you mean? Yes, of course. Uh, in, the, in the Lancet report, for example, uh, some of the phrases uh, that is often mentioned, one of them is the burden of disease. Now, this word or this phrase as burden of disease is very troubling to me because mental health, again, if you just look at it through the illness lens, it's looking at the person and it's not really looking at the societal lens. And so again, you know, this whole burden of disease and is it a disease, is it an illness? And then burden, you know, burden on whom? Is it then a burden on society? And there is just this whole fascination and obsession, you know, because it's the capitalist model, everyone is obsessed with productivity. Uh, everyone is obsessed with not being a burden. And I think that, you know, if someone is sad or upset or depressed, um, it is up to the community or the village to figure out what is the problem. And I don't think in ancient times this was looked upon as a burden. And this is a very a capitalist lens, as I say, and the global mental health also, the movement takes this whole ableist lens that there are these normal people and then there are these abnormal people who are a burden and they shouldn't be a burden. And this whole ableist approach, you know, we discuss it so much in disability work, in cross-disability work, how, you know, language has to change. Like we've gone from words like confined in a wheelchair to wheelchair user. And, you know, just simple things like that. We have to stop using words like burden, confined, restricted, because these are all societal constructs. And we need to... Um, look at people in distress with a more compassionate, uh, more inclusive lens that, you know, what has happened to the person, perhaps they are a refugee, perhaps they're living in war, perhaps they have had marital rape or, uh, you know, childhood sexual abuse. We need to look at this so-called burdens and figure out why they are the burdens and then, and then try and look at that. And, you know, just in my own, um, you know, I'm a poet, you had mentioned that I just had a book out and I use poetry as therapy. And I think that people need time to be free, to observe, to paint, to think 
and if everyone is just producing it's a it's a very big problem there will be no artists and poets and thinkers and just lastly i want to just mention that two days ago i was in london and um, you know i currently live in a very small town called preston but when i go to london and when i was there in fact two days ago i'm noticing you know i got off in the train station and there are all these people just staring at their at their screens on their smartphones everyone in a line is getting up on those escalators the escalators are going up so 20 years ago we had science fiction films which showed that you know how people are going to be turned into automatons just producing producing i think we have reached that point that we are the people in those science fiction films that's a great point and it speaks also to the point you made about exporting an idea about what what mental health looks like and what mental health treatment looks like to other countries when we haven't necessarily reflexively looked at how those concepts are impacting the west you mentioned that uh the global mental health plan that was laid out in the uk last week is meant to be implemented worldwide including in india where your foundation does its work can you talk a little bit about your concerns about this strategy in india and how your group takes a different approach there So you know when the the words global mental health are used they are also used in the same vein with words like uh, you know intervention and treatment so there are all of these kind of uh, words being used with global mental health um i think that uh, just taking it to india where you know where we have much bigger problems um poverty people living under the the poverty line there are so many other ways in which we have to look at why people are living in distress i mean for example we have farmer suicides in our country because the crop is not yielding what it should yield and so they are not able to feed their families because they can't sell the crop and there are many farmers committing suicide now if a western uh western model is to look at this they will think oh the farmers are depressed they are committing suicide let's give them drugs i don't think giving them drugs or a western treatment model is going to fix the problem you need to say okay this this land is arid it's not giving us crop perhaps we can help these people to get trained in cattle farming perhaps we can have them be trained in something else the government needs to get involved I think it's a lot of just passing the buck people are not really looking at what is causing the farmer suicides and they will try and then just put like a bandage on top of a fracture and this will not work because obviously if the land is not going to produce giving them drugs is not going to make the land produce and they will still have the same problem and now they will be dopey and have all the other side effects which come with treatment Uh, so my group you know we take a much much different um, approach of course always looking at trauma at the core we look at adverse childhood effects and we look at um, you know what has happened and then we try and work with the community we work a lot with peer support with non hierarchical peer support kind of models um i think we need to think about all of this and and also global mental health one of the other tr- troubling points is they mention treatment gap treatment gap over and over but i keep saying why don't we work on prevention and work on lifestyle and nutrition and societal you know strengthen the societal and social and environmental factors so that there is less distress and less mental health issues one of the other terms that's used frequently in the new lancet report and in the global mental health movement more generally is this idea that uh, you can reduce mental health stigma through education and the use of technology in order to get more people into treatment you have pointed out issues with the application of this framing of anti-stigma campaigns in india in the past can you talk about your concerns with this yes of course stigma is very real stigma is very real especially in a country like india where um where people with mental health labels and conditions you know people families will not talk about it if someone is suffering and in india a lot of people do have depression schizophrenia you know some of the more um, difficult mental health labels that and and people can just lock 
their family member up in, into a colonial style asylum because they can and then they can pretend the person doesn't exist so there is a lot of stigma but the point is i feel that you know we need to start looking at other ways because if it's just stigma then we're looking again at the person being the problem i think we need to start saying for example in india talk about things like childhood sexual abuse or pedophilia or you know caregivers if a person has got you know bipolar disorder perhaps they had an unhappy childhood and we need to start addressing that but um, anti stigma campaign is not going to help that because an anti stigma campaign will just again be labeling the person that oh this person is depressed or this person is unproductive using the same productivity lens they are not going to talk about the family issues and they'll just say oh once he starts going to the doctor or once he just starts talking about it or getting some treatment they will get better so i think for example because the one they are going to try and replicate is the one called the time to change campaign which is the campaign in the uk and it's already spent millions and millions of pounds on it and they want to take that kind of a campaign to india i think we have to be very careful because it again perpetuates the illness model the problem that one person has the problem and that person will get better with treatment and technology really bothers me and using using technology because again technology most technology will still take people down decision trees and in order to slot them into boxes again trying to um you know make a case for treatment or again replicating the troubling dsm ways of labeling people by disorder um so technology uh, i think in a country which is human resource rich we have a lot of people there is no and and you know manpower is cheap in india i think it's better to train more people on the ground create more community workers um technology will again just again just be perpetuating the biomedical approach and slotting people into boxes and um everyone is anyway on smartphones there will be an over medicalizing of the human condition there will be a over diagnosis like in america where children of you know 8 9 year old children are on ritalin and all kinds of psychotropic medication and i think this will be a huge problem because we don't want it to become a just a normal everyday thing like you're popping vitamins and you're popping psychotropic drugs we don't want our children to be to be medicalized put into those boxes uh, which is already happening in some of the more progressive schools and progressive cities in delhi in mumbai you know there are now these school counselors and they are i'm a mother of four boys and boys have a um, you know greater likelihood of being called adhd and then you know going down that whole treatment route and we need to accept everyone is different and some children will play more and be more hyperactive so this whole stigma thing bothers me and technology is very worrying indeed we've covered some research on madden america looking at the effect of anti-stigma campaigns that have been rolled out in different countries and the results suggest that when these stigma campaigns use messages that construe mental distress as biological illness it actually increases the likelihood that people will stay away or uh, increases the likelihood of social distancing in their communities and research by John Reed and Eleanor Longden suggests that psychosocial explanations like the ones you're talking about increase empathy and responsiveness within those same communities it seems to tie in well with your work advocating for a trauma informed approach can you talk a little bit about how using this framework to address the stress and emotional difficulties around the world looks very different from what the lancet report is advocating you know we use the trauma informed approach a lot and as you mentioned john reed and others like that and many other people activists you know advocating for psychosocial disability and ways to deal with it we have been saying this whole thing about the societal lens and childhood abuse and adverse effects uh, and in the lancet report um, you know for the first time i think they have mentioned um, this they meant, they call it the convergent theory where they are saying okay we are looking at the societal lens and the um, genetic genetic markers 
but they are almost uh, like as if they have come up with this whole thing they don't they don't give credit to any of these other people who have been talking about it for the last 10 20 years as if they have come up with it themselves so i think the lancet report is just um stealing many people's ideas and presenting it almost like you know taking an old concept and presenting it as their own and it's very very bad to do that i think you know as you mentioned earlier that this whole concept of empathy so when we look at the societal lens and when we look at it as a psychosocial disability rather than as mental illness uh, you know we may see an abusive husband causing sexual trauma we may see an older cousin uh, abusing a younger cousin and there's a lot of um, uh, incest in india there is a lot of we still have joint families and we still have uh you know children and many people sleeping in the same room and things would just get uh, sort of swept under the carpet so we have a lot of problems with with this whole um, being okay with marital rape and i think when we look at uh, distress and what is happening to cause the mental health issues there is then uh, of course uh, empathy and compassion but also i think it's important to see that you know when we start calling out the marital rapist or or the abuser we are then labeling the perpetuator and not just the victim which is right now what is happening because right now if the person showing the symptoms of mental health distress is is you know acting erratically they will be the one with getting the label of bipolar disorder or anxiety and the person who has been raping them or abusing them or whatever is the reason it could be poverty it's not always a sexual thing it could be economic thing those people the perpetuator they are not labeled or they are you know they get away scot free so i think when we look at these models uh, we do we do come up with a more just world and a world where where we will have better better rights better treatment better i don't want to say the word treatment but you know what i'm trying to say i also want to just add that in india um you know we do have this panchayat model and the panchayat model is the elders of the village the panchayat is normally a panch comes from five panch is the hindi word for five and it normally means that there will be a group of village elders and every sunday or once a month people who have a problem in the village they are able to go to them and the village elders will listen to them asking for justice so in this model for example a woman who's being abused in her marriage or by her in-laws or in any case like that she can go and ask the village elders and ask for justice the village elders can take a view and often the abuser is also recognized and there can be a temporary separation and there is shame for the abuser and not the victim but if we take the global mental health model uh, you know that that will not at all look at the abuser the it will just keep doing more of the treatment and medicalizing the affected person while the abuse might still continue and therefore i'm really very anxious of these terms like treatment treatment gap care illness thank you for highlighting the differences and the way in which there might be some danger in implementing a model without considering existing social practices in a country like india another alternative framework you've discussed is your poetry as therapy model can you tell us a little bit more about that Yes so I have been using poetry as therapy here in the UK uh, I go into a national health service um, uh, it is called a secure unit a secure unit is like a cross between a prison and a mental health facility where there are people who are offenders but they also have a mental health label and so it's like a prison and you go in and these people are not allowed to go out and I've been using poetry as therapy here with them and um, it's very very powerful because you know these are people who who have lost their voice in a way they are just you know they have just put away they don't know how long there are people there who've been there for 10 years and there's this very young brilliant man ellis and he's like a rap star you know he's so good his words are so good and i'm like wow ellis that's such a gift 
But the thing is that he keeps saying, you know, I keep coming up for parole and then I'm never let out. So their weekly sessions of poetry, um, he really was looking forward to them. And, you know, it was much better than so many of the other things that they were they were doing, um, you know, like like there was yoga and there was pottery and this, that, because they felt very empowered that finally someone is listening to their voice, their words, and then even just sitting and, and writing, you know, what is going on with them, I would leave them with prompts. It is very, very uh, therapeutic, very cathartic. And um, I've been, of course, doing this with victims of domestic violence. And I think we need to create more models like this. Uh, a friend of mine in India does dance and movement as therapy. And trauma, when we look at trauma, you know, Dr. Bessel van der Ork has written this book called Body Keeps the Score. And the Body Keeps the Score talks about how trauma resides in other parts of the body. So we need to be looking at these alternative models of therapy, poetry as therapy, movement as therapy, and even remove the word therapy because therapy itself is, is troubling in itself. But right now, for want of a better word, I'm using it uh, to say that, you know, this these kind of approaches, dance, poetry, art, um, movement, massage, uh, and then nutrition, you know, all of these things put the body at the fore and not the mind. And the global mental health uh, movement keeps putting the mind at the fore. And I do think that mental health distress is just health. And we need to look at, at the whole body. And poetry as therapy has, has really, you know, it's one of my passions. I write about it. I speak about it. I, I conduct these classes. So I think that we need to be thinking more about these alternatives and not just uh, pills and not just the Western models, which will unfortunately just be taken and dumped in countries like India. Given the healing power of poetry that you've discussed, I know that you're willing to read us one of your newer poems today, Button, from a Me Too anthology, which was also published on the BBC. We'll end with your reading of the poem. And before we go, I just want to thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your story and for sharing your worries about the global mental health movement. Thank you. So this is Button. And this was written from through my, my own life. And um, luckily, I'm no longer with the husband I talk about in this poem. So here's Button. Persuaded to try medication. Very few side effects. No problem. Dr. Atul smiles at your husband. You are just a possession. A car to service. A house to maintain. He proudly leads you home. 10 mg of this and that and a brand new wife. Your voice does not matter. The thickening tongue, the, diminish, the diminishing libido, your body not your own. Your limbs swim in treacle, your mind anesthetized. Your smile pasted. The new improved wife, model 101, will last without complaint. Just press the button. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Good to talk with you, Justin. For our second interview on the response of mental health activists to the UK summit and the Lancet report, we are joined by Dr. Bhargavi Devar. She identifies as a childhood survivor of psychiatric institutions in India. She went on to train as a philosopher and social science researcher at the Indian Institute of Technology in Bombay and has published and co-edited several books, including Psychoanalysis as a Human Science, Mental Health of Indian Women, Engendering Mental Health, while also producing collections of poems and short stories. Dr. Devar is an international trainer in the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, the CRPD, and the founder of the Bapu Trust for Research on Mind and Discourse in India. This organization aims to give visibility to user-survivor-centered mental health advocacy and studies traditional healing systems in India. Welcome to the Madden America podcast, Dr. Devar. Um, thank you so much, Justin. I'm really happy to um, join you uh, in this podcast. I'm a long, long-time admirer of uh, Madden America and Bob's work. Um, I think uh, it's it's one of the best evidence-based platforms online uh, for people like us uh, in uh, in the global south who have no access to library resources 
from the West. Um, so thanks to Madden America uh, for inviting me into this platform and thanks to you for giving this time. Thank you. And thank you for your contributions to Madden America as well. In your recent blog post for Madden America, you discussed the Transforming Communities for Inclusion, TCI group, and the Asia-Pacific section in particular, and the work that this group is doing to counter the globalization of Western psychiatric practice. To get us started, would you mind setting the stage a little bit? What is the TCI group? How did it form, and what are the goals of the group? Um, you, you mentioned uh, the BAPU Trust for Research on Mind and Discourse. We started in 1999, and it was really a big struggle um, trying to establish uh, mental health advocacy in India. We were excluded, laughed at, um, silenced, uh, made invisible. Um, and I think, though, the situation continues uh, until, until very recently, where uh, just to talk about uh, human rights of persons with psychosocial disabilities is, uh, is, 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 is not accepted at all. Um, and then came the, you know, the Convention on Rights of Persons with Disabilities. We were quite active in that. At this time, we also joined the World Network of Users and Survivors of Psychiatry, uh, which came with a very Western, Global North views about advocacy. Uh, we couldn't relate to it very much because in the Asia-Pacific region, as I traveled more and more, I found that there weren't many institutions, many countries did not have mental health legislations. Um, there was barely any psychiatry and certainly there were not many angry users and survivors. So our exposure to the advocacy movement in the global north was a bit mixed. Um, met amazing people like uh, Chris Hansen, Mary O'Hagan, um, Judy Chamberlain, some of the leaders, pioneering leaders of the transformatory movement in the West. But it was a bit isolated for us in the Bapu Trust. Um, and so slowly we started looking for peers in our own region. And uh, Nepal, Philippines, Indonesia, uh, Fiji, China, Hong Kong, traveled a lot, um, made connect with uh, emerging leaders in these countries. And we started to define our own uh, expression of mental health advocacy for Asia. Then uh, I think one of the key uh, learnings for me was that uh, that's where colonialism came up in a big way for us. Nepal was never colonized. They don't have a mental health law. They don't have institutions in the, in the way that, uh, that we have them in a post-colonial country like India. They don't have the old baggage of medical legal frameworks. For example, Nepal doesn't have a guardianship law, which most all Commonwealth countries have. But it was good to, it was like a, like a breath of fresh air to travel to countries which were uh, never colonized or uh, were not colonized by, by the British and to see what those systems are like. Um, it was also a bit of a relief to know that not every country um, has these oppressive medical legal traditions which the British left behind for us here in India and in all the Commonwealth countries of Asia. Yeah, and so and that's when we started to get together and, and share experiences and to see, okay, what can we do um, in the Asian region? And because there were no, no, not many institutions and not many psychiatrists, um, our movement started to define itself in a different way. The violations, of course, happened, but they happened more in communities, so much within institutions, or they happened within shelters, things that family members put together, like bamboo cages, prayer halls, uh, things like that. So it happened more in communities without legal sanction. There was no mental health law to allow violence. And so we started to discuss whether we should call ourselves users, survivors of psychiatry, and felt that that was too disempowering, and it pitched us against the medical system. Whereas what we really want is life in communities, um, and so we called ourselves Transforming Communities for Inclusion of Persons with Psychosocial Disabilities, Asia. What is our goal? Um, we would like to meet and mobilize um, all Asian countries and all Pacific countries. Right now, we're focusing on South Asia, Southeast Asia, East Asia, and Pacific. 
but we hope that sooner or later we will also have friends in west asia we meet a lot in order to share and learn uh, particularly about uh, what inclusion means we've done several studies on inclusion there is pedagogy around legal capacity there's pedagogy around uh, um, liberty right to liberty and right to life but there's not much pedagogy around uh, what inclusion means modern law takes a family and community uh, for granted um so there's really no explication within the scope of law for what inclusion means and how to promote it uh through through human rights legislation um and so we are keen to see more uh, more ideation more concepts more theories more academics um and more practice uh on the subject of inclusion um interestingly in india we have two legislations one is the old colonial mental lunacy act now we have a new version of it which is called the mental health care act but even that act which has coercion at its core uh even that act has the provision for right to live independently and be included in communities um so slowly legislations are coming in with uh, with uh, new formulations on inclusion which is a good thing another aspect of our work is to strengthen national advocacy we support emerging leaders in asian countries and pacific countries um and we take out uh, what we call country missions where some of us go and exchange with the local partners uh, the cross disability movement and uh, uh the the other stakeholders for example family caregiver groups uh service providers of which there are so few um in asian countries um so we exchange with them and we bring news about the crpd sometimes a perhaps a two to three day full full blown training on the convention on rights of persons with disabilities and we try to kind of encourage the national cross disability alliance to include persons with dis- uh, psychosocial disabilities within their membership um, and in this way sometimes we've even seen uh, disabled people's organization develop out of uh, this our facilitation in countries um we participate in global processes uh, we write to the un when they ask for draft comments comments on any of their drafts and we participate in un uh, regional uh, regional meetings and bali declaration was one of the advocacy documents it's the first one which is so comprehensive uh, we are very happy uh, with this and we feel that it's useful not just for our reason uh, region but also for the rest of the world thank you i wanted to ask another question about the bali declaration which you mentioned the tci asia pacific group issued the statement in August and it criticized mental health providers in these regions for infringing upon the human rights of persons with psychosocial disabilities. The declaration calls for quote a paradigm shift towards inclusion and away from a medical model or a sole focus on mental health. Can you tell us what led to the development of the Bali declaration and the importance of the UN CRPD that you mentioned? well in 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 present times i think that the asian region um particularly due to the active capacity building done by organizations like the international disability alliance that's ida most of us in the disability movement are well informed or trained uh, directly on the crpd we've had opportunities to uh participate in the national reporting process the parallel report writing process with cross disability alliances uh we've had opportunities to travel to new york to participate in the conference of state parties with respect to the crpd we've had uh opportunities to tra- travel to geneva uh, to contribute to several general comments uh for example on participation on uh, legal capacity on uh, on article 19 which is on inclusion we've had the opportunity to engage with uh, the special rapporteurs like dr danius puras and his recent report on right to higher standard of health we've had opportunity to engage with 
Ms. Catalina Devandas from the Special Raptors Office of Disabilities contribute to some of her reports. So we've had huge exposure compared to the mental health uh, advocacy movement or the user survivor movement in Global North. Um, I think a lot of us in low-income, middle-income countries are by now uh, very much uh, familiar with what is expected after the ratification of the Convention on Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Another important development, strategic development for our region is that there is close collaboration, if not partnership, if not membership within the cross-disability movement. So I think it's been so important for us to just say that, look, we are not part of the mental health movement, but we are really part of the cross-disability movement. Uh, we are post-CRPD um, as, as TCI Asia Pacific. TCI Asia Pacific is what it is because um, we were born after the CRPD and because of the CRPD. So uh, the way we pitch our advocacy is very different from, uh, you know, say the WNUSP, uh, the European Network of User Survivors in Psychiatry and so on. So uh, we just came much later and so we came with the wisdom of the CRPD. And that's why we say that there could be two gates uh, for entering advocacy and en ensuring our rights. One gate is through the mental health gate. You know, you continue to battle the mental health systems, mental health laws, mental health professionals. That's one way. As you know, most of us get exhausted in this battle because we are alone um, and people, they don't listen to us anymore now than they did, say, 60 years ago. And also in our region, there aren't many psychiatrists, like I said, and there's not much of a battle going on. Um, and whereas the cross-disability movement post-CRPD in the last 10 years, is uh, it has strength of numbers. It does continue to have a spirit of collaboration and partnership. It does welcome us. We are not invisible within the cross-disability movement. Usually, they tend to ask us uh, and include us in, you know, the important political processes that they are engaged in. And so, it's been empowering for us to work with the cross disability movement and post post our um, our demands, our requests uh, within the larger development framework. So we can say we want jobs, we can we want education, allow us to complete our education provide us reasonable accommodation within workspaces. We will do sports. Uh, we will participate in marriage uh, festivals and other cultural activities. So we, we, if we go through this gate, then there are a number of opportunities which open up for us. When you reduce um, our rights to just right to mental health care, that's a dead end, you know, and that's a dead end. You either say, okay, mental health, what do you have to offer? Uh, you know, you, you offer many kinds of violations of human rights. Um, and that's not a choice for us. It's, it's oppression. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> you have got the words wrong. You're not offering us choice. But as we go through the development gate, then, you know, there's really a lot out there. And when you enter through the development gate, healthcare is only one of the many rights which are available. So a lot of us in Asia Pacific decided that we will look for inclusion as a clarion call for our movement in the Asia-Pacific and not really just pitch ourselves against the medical system. And when we talk inclusion, then we carry the, the cooperations of the cross-disability movement. It works for us. Thank you. Given the advances that you mentioned in the cross-disability movement growing out of the CRPD and the rights outlined in the Bali Declaration, can you talk a little bit about how the recent Lancet Commission report and the global mental health movement more generally measure up in comparison to these to this other framework? And how is the global mental health movement incorporating this cross-disability paradigm? And in what ways are they really missing the mark? Well, I don't know, you know, because uh, you can see that there is a hybrid language developing within mental health today. It's uh, when we started advocating for the CRPD, ensuring our rights uh, within the scope of the CRPD, 
there was a very different response from the medical professionals 10 years ago. Uh, for a long time, they just uh, uh, ignored the CRPD or really wrote uh, against the CRPD very much with the interest to maintain the status quo with respect to mental health. So earlier when there were conferences, you would hear things like, you know, should institutions go or should they remain? Uh, what is the importance of having mental institutions? And trust me, in, in our region, we don't have mental hospitals. We have mental asylums. And I, and I, I think that's true worldwide. You know, as long as you have penal provisions, that's still a colonial practice wherever it may occur. Um, but slowly, you know, though times changed and people are actually recognizing that you cannot ignore the CRPD anymore. And so more and more hybrid languages are coming up. For example, in India, we have a law which, which is sugar-coated with CRPD, um, but has coercion at the core. But surprisingly, uh, this law has given rise to a few important and positive um, jurisprudence on involuntary commitment. Um, and so I think there are, things are changing. Global mental health, again, uh, it has moved from filling the treatment gap to actually recognizing the role of development in uh, impacting mental health, both positively and negatively. Uh, I have to confess that I, you know, the, the Lancet paper, which is just out, is really a very long paper. I haven't read all of it. But there's a big topic on participation uh, when it comes to the Global Mental Health Summit. The Global Disability Summit, we've been to a lot of these global conferences, um, including the Conference of State Parties, the Global Disability Summit, um, and several, uh, several uh, such events. And uh, it's considered a moral wrong these days not to include us in those meetings, where policies are discussed which will impact us. Um, so nothing about us without has us gone really deep uh, into the policy making circles worldwide. Uh, so it was quite a surprise for us that uh, this meeting was uh, by the doctors for the doctors, and uh, we were not invited, or we were given a very kind of okay, you can be a backbencher and listen to what's going on kind of role uh, with respect to the Global Mental Health Summit. Yeah, so that's uh, that's one big big concern that, that we all had. Why is it that if you say that you're following the CRPD, then right on top of that document is the right to participation, which will ensure dignity. And so why would you not do that? And the other is, of course, you know, the, if you read the Lancet paper and look at the schedule, we issued our own uh, letter. Um, a big concern is that while the, the Lancet paper uh, talks about mental health uh, with a broader framework, it's brought in lots of stuff on development, it's brought in lots of stuff on psychosocial interventions, um, non-formal caregivers, non-formal service providers, and all of that. It doesn't touch the elephant in the room. What are we going to do with all the drugs which are flooding North countries and which will now be loaded onto big ships to cross over different oceans to reach us in the Asia-Pacific region. So that's a big concern, you know. Um, if it was like 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when drugs were experimental and you were flooding populations with those experimental drugs and you didn't know what harm it caused, this is one kind of moral question. Today you know the harm it causes, it causes and still, you know, you export them to our lands. Um, I think it's uh, it's gone beyond morality. It's not a moral question anymore. You don't have a choice. You don't do this. That's it. Um, and uh, so and so that's one of the big concerns that that we have. That you, you know your institutions have failed. You know that your mental health laws have failed. You know that you have caused harm worldwide. And why would you want to do this to the so-called global South, which is low-income, middle-income countries? Why would a community of farmers who are in debt, poverty, uh, you know, environmental uh, degradation due to various you know, political actions taken in agriculture in India today, why would you want to go to a community like this and tell them that you want to fill the treatment gap?
So this is, for me, it's, and for us in Asia-Pacific region, is astonishing um, that, that a country can do this. Um, so, yeah, this is a big topic for us. Thank you. In your blog, in response to the recent UK summit on World Mental Health Day uh, that appeared on Madden America, you refer to the phenomenon of the North driving the South. Can you say more about the colonial legacy of psychiatry in India and the, quote, global South and how the rush to fill the treatment gap, as it's put in the movement, can be seen as a continuation of these practices? Um, India, like, you know, uh, like uh, there are other Commonwealth nations, Singapore, Malaysia. There are also the British protectorates. Um, so you have the, uh, you know, the Fiji Islands. Some of them have Tonga. Tonga is a recent example of a country having got independence, though it was never part of the uh, British colony, but it was a protectorate. So we have a whole bunch of countries like this in the Asia-Pacific region, and I dare say in other, in Africa for sure. And uh, so, yeah, so we have a template, the blueprint uh, of mental health system is derived from the British framework. So we have all of all these countries have, some of them continue to have the old lunacy law. Example, Maldives, I think so. It has the old lunacy law of 1912. Uh, So from 1858, we had the Lunatic Asylums Act and we had the Lunacy Act. And it became the Mental Health Act in the 1990s. And then now we have the Mental Health Care Act. And uh, over the years, the, the naming of people who will receive this law has changed from a lunatic idiot person of unsound mind to presently person with high support need you know, in the Mental Health Care Act. But the the penal format of the of the legislation has not changed. So in the heart of the legislation is uh, involuntary admission, use of coercion. There is of course a lot of CRPD language used in the in the mental health care law, but at the core there is involuntary commitment. And as you will know worldwide, um, uh, and also here, uh, you know, in in the in the countries where the coercive law exists, there is no way that you can apprehend a person without violating their dignity, without violating their physical and mental integrity. So you really have to do something to the, to the physical body of a person in order to apprehend them and put them away. And so this is something for which the global mental health movement talks about evidence base all the time. But how doing this to someone will actually result in filling the treatment gap? Why is this violation of apprehending someone physically, either through restraints or through chemical restraints, whatever it may be, why this is a part of medical treatment? Why is this a medical action rather than a penal action? So there are these peculiarities which are found in colonial uh, colonial legal frameworks, uh, which people have tried to convert a penal framework into a medical framework. But we have to really recognize the fact that mental health law, wherever it exists, is pre-human rights. It was born of colonialism. It was born through the war period. It was born through you know periods when people were putting people away for Uh, reasons of social control, uh, reasons of saving the face of the colonizer uh, for reasons which are quite different from medical reasons. And so such a law, you know, you suddenly cannot transform it by, you know, by magic uh, uh, into a medical law. It never was and it never will be. Um, and so that's what we are looking at um, when the North comes to us and say, okay, let's fill the treatment gap. This is what they bring. Um, I haven't seen an article by uh, by the global mental health movement really questioning and challenging uh, the colonial framework of uh, of the institutions of the laws. In fact, uh, uh, you know the leaders of the global mental health movement has have written recently in Indian newspapers how wonderful our mental health care uh, act is. That it's one of the most progressive acts in the world. 
this not really this is not really CRPD compliant. That's for sure. Recently, there's this debate going on in Twitter that uh, after the law was changed in the UK in 2008, actually, the number of detentions went up several notches, like several, like went up like uh, many times over. Um, and I, I take the case of uh, of Korea as well, where they brought in a new mental health act because, well, the WHO has been saying very loudly for a long time that a country without a mental health law is not very modern. So they brought in a mental health act in 2008 and the number of institutions in that country went up like by 200 times. So now they have the highest number of institutions in our part of the world. So also now with Thailand, they're struggling with how to deinstitutionalize. They brought in a law in late, uh, in 2008, 2009, something like that. And uh, so these are facts that uh, bring to me again and again that dealing with an old system here, which is trying to wear new clothes, but that's not going to happen. You mentioned that the colonial mental health policies and laws that were put on the books sometimes acted to save the face of the colonizers. And certainly there's some parallel here to what you termed the North driving the South phenomenon with a summit in the UK, I'm not including the voices of people with psychosocial disabilities in the countries in which they intend to implement this policy. Can you say something about how this current framework might also serve to save the face of the global north? Ah, that's that's a tough one. I don't think I have the answers to that. But I do think, you know, that uh, as one would expect, if moral grounds are still a foundation on which governments and societies function, that a country which has colonized several other countries over centuries would self-reflect and come back with, okay, you know, um, yeah, that happened and that was wrong. But we don't see that kind of uh, remorse. Um, And in fact, uh, it's sad that countries come back with intent to do more harm, uh, knowing fully well that the kind of mental health systems that they uh, created for themselves um, have destroyed um, large populations within their own countries. But it appears that within policy, there is no morality. These kinds of moral questions are not asked. And I don't think it's a one-way thing, by the way. I think that there were a lot of people who were colonized, who were very complicit with this receiving this kind of framework from the British. So it's not that we are the victims of an external process. We imbibed it. We welcomed it. In fact, some of the global mental health professionals, many of them are from the global south, particularly India. So I do think it's a moral question, though as an individual, I can only think in terms of morality. I don't know how uh, governments process morality, but I think they should. Thank you. And how would adopting a rights-based framework, a framework with moral values, as presented by the UN Special Rapporteur, Danius Puris, um, and the CRPD. I'm wondering how that framework might look different on the ground compared to the proposals being outlined in the UK summit and by the global mental health movement. Well, for sure, you know, uh, we constantly do this in our CRPD trainings. Imagine a world where the CRPD is realized. Um, draw a rich picture of what that would look like. And session after session, training program after training program, people can imagine. People can imagine. Uh, And today, unlike, say, seven, eight years ago, there are many good practice examples of supported decision-making on the ground, of uh, deinstitutionalization, of, uh, you know, changes in law reform. Uh, We had this amazing law recently from Peru, um, uh, which, which did away with guardianship. Um, we have uh, good practice examples. We have one, Bapu Trust. We've, we've worked with peer support systems, setting up community support systems. 
neighborhood care systems, all of that in low-income communities in Pune City. Um, and it's a it's a 15-year-old project, but it became sharpened and more more satisfactory for us uh, from the CRPD perspective in the last seven to eight years. And uh, here we bring people together on uh, you know on support and care, uh, especially for people with high support needs. I believe that because of our program, institutionalization is, uh, is, is greatly reduced. We have been able to empower families. And make, I think the key is to link with development services, not after people have taken their medicines, not after they have recovered from their mental illness, and not after, after, after all, all the stuff has happened, you know, when you take those drugs but right from the start of knowing that somebody is going through distress or disturbance then to link them up with different kinds of development services and particularly work and employment, uh, food and nutrition, uh, social support systems, building social capital, uh, enhancing their uh, human support systems, whether it's families or neighbors or friends or peers in their workplace or peers in their schools or colleges. Having uh, groups of volunteers or or paid staff who can uh, just be there to listen, befriending services, home visitors. So we have a whole bunch of stuff going on uh, in 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 people in, in communities where people want to really see the CRPD flourish. I think that's one of the big things about the Bali Declaration. Again and again, we are saying that professionals, mental health professionals, psychiatrists. Do not gatekeep. Do not tra- make trade-offs. You know, you take your pills, you recover, and then you go to job. You take your pills, you recover, and then you go to your yoga class. You recover, take your pills, and then you go play football. No way. Stop the gatekeeping. People have all the, ri- all the rights as they are. I think that's a wonderful conclusion to this podcast. So thank you so much for being available for this interview and for making time to speak about this issue. Thanks a lot, Justin, for the opportunity. So I just wanted to thank Jill Mill, Dr. Devar, and Justin for taking the time to chat today. And if you'd like to know more about their work, you can find links on the post that accompanies this interview on madinamerica.com and madinasia.org. So thank you for listening today. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.